Hey, welcome to episode two of the Talk About Anything podcast. Uh, this podcast is me having conversations with people from different perspectives, walks of life, experiences, and even faiths uh, about anything. In this episode, I talked to Sarah Yardley, who is a pastor and missionary in Cornwall, England. She was born and raised in Orange County, California, and now lives and ministers in England. And we talk about a lot of different stuff, uh, our similar yet very different backgrounds, uh, the time I spent in England, the time she spends in England, cultural issues, the gospel, the whole thing. So uh, I'm excited to have you hear from my old friend, Sarah Yardley. Uh, my microphone doesn't sound great. Hers sounds fantastic. Sorry about that. We'll be working on it for future episodes. Uh, the Talk About Anything podcast is released once a month, and uh, I'm really excited. I'm hoping our next guest uh, will be an atheist who doesn't really like Christians. I'm still working on finalizing that, but um, even if he's not our next guest, in theory, he'll be a guest in the next couple months. So uh, that's the kind of thing we're doing. People from all different kinds of walks of life, different perspectives, different faiths, uh, having a conversation with a Christian about literally anything. So here's my conversation with Sarah Yardley. Wow. Yeah. I feel like... It's an interesting time and Portland is in the little bit of time that I've started to spend there and um, just experiencing so much of um, the like rawness of everything. Yeah. And when I was there, I was like, it's in some ways the closest thing to Europe that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's fully America as well. Like it's really interesting. Yeah, it it has it has all of the problem. I hate to say problems of Europe. It has all the problems of Europe uh, without some of the <laughs> redeeming qualities. Um, yeah, we've had guys who have gone to like different conferences, church planting conferences, church health conferences, whatever, and they go to Orange County, or they go to Florida, or they go to Texas, or they go to Chicago. They go to these conferences. And then they've basically been told nothing we're saying applies to you because you're in the Pacific Northwest. Um, <laughs> just, just what a time to be alive. How, how special for everybody. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, there's a part of me that says like, and, and I don't know what this says about me, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I would really, really hate it in the Bible. Um, yeah. And, so, so I'm well, happy maybe like the way I would say that, because I think we're both saying the same thing with this is I can see all the ways that God has stretched my soul, sharpened my theology and honed who I am yeah. by being in a place where Christianity is in the minority. Mm -hmm. And so if I had to go back and exchange those experiences for feeling safe, comfortable, and still sitting in a circle debating Calvinism versus Arminianism, oh, I'm so I would be like, no, thank you. <laughs> Please may I give that to somebody else. Yeah. Um, and like, it's been some of the hardest experiences in my life to be in such kind of frontline places. But yeah. man, like the way I know Jesus, I could, I would never exchange the way I know Jesus for that. Yeah. And that's, that's so true. Cause like I had a friend who was, um, he was getting his uh, bachelor's in psychology and um, you know, at the beginning of the, like his first class, they're asking all like the standard nature versus nurture kind of questions. And, and the professor was like, I feel sorry for you if you're still fighting that argument. <laughs> like it's so, we're so far beyond all that. 
But then there's people that's like, they still want to so badly. Um, and, and those are also the moments where I think because of the background that we both have, God's given me like a tremendous amount of compassion and yeah. where, where that compassion starts to ebb away, God like recorrects me with that compassion because so many of my friends still live in slightly siloed Christian bubble communities. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I can't just broad brushstroke and throw those under the bus either because I'm like, actually, these are people who I know and love and have walked with for years. They're just living in such an insular state. Yes. that That's all that their experience includes. Um, and so I feel like the prayer I always have is God give me compassion, humility, but also may I not fall into those same traps again. Yeah. Because I spent a lot of my youth debating things that I'm now like, oh my word. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that like, there's, there's so, I used to be frustrated about it, but there's very little um, physical evidence of any sermon I've preached uh, before a certain point. Yeah. I'm very, I, I, I consider that a saving grace these days. Yeah. Um, uh. I, uh, I, I was so like unknown and uncool in my twenties and yeah. I, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, because some of the things I would have said, do not want record of that publicly. Yeah. Whereas I have friends who were much cooler and more known than I am and still are, but they've got sermons going back to like way before they would be comfortable with, um, you know. And you know what? Also, I think sometimes God like just allows us to cultivate a sense of humor. Um, the Merrick family, I've remained really, really close to. And I was calling with Kate the other day and we were just telling the story where she, being utterly unconscious, made a comment that would have been really sharp and sarcastic if she hadn't been utterly unconscious. Sure, sure. It would have been savage. But she just like obliviously was like, but of course we all think this. Yes. And realized that she was saying it. Um, afterwards to someone who, who felt very differently. And I thought actually like at the end of the day, also, we all have to be able to laugh at ourselves with each other yeah. and Christ who I think holds a lot of humor with us in these things. So, yeah, I think that comes back to assumption because yeah. um, I find that like most of the time where there is some like bump, a cultural bump, a generational bump, whatever it is, it's an assumption of shared, either shared experience or an assumption of shared, um, shared priorities or shared values. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't know, I mean, when you live in another country, you have to get rid of all of those. So you're kind of starting clean, but when you live in the same culture, the same geographic area, um, you, you make these assumptions. So we, we had a meeting, um, like three weeks ago on Zoom, and we had our like denominational general superintendent. So he's a grand poobah. And uh, so he's he's sharing this presentation. And I, I mean, I usually have like one or two text threads going with other pastors during these sort of Zoom meetings, right? Um, and I never had so many. And, hmm. and never had so many that weren't initiated by me for the purpose of like me having somewhere to like say sarcastic things. But, but what I came to at the end of that was he had a shared value or shared assumption that is true for his generation. And anyone under a certain age was just going, yeah, we really don't care about that. Uh, but when you assume it, you just think, oh, everybody thinks this. Yeah, but, 100%. Yeah, there, there's that funny reality of, of any place can become insular. 
and yeah. uh, UK contacts can become insular. Yeah. Okay, I, I have marked out till six o'clock because I've got sure. to do the master's degree. So I don't want to yeah. rush us. We can chat forever. Yeah. And we are already recording. So maybe we're already recording. So but... yeah, what I have found, and, and I am still learning how to do this type of podcast. Um, and it was something I had in my head for about a year. And then um, I, I didn't know how to format it right until recently. And then I was kind of on the fence about it. And somebody in my church said, um, I would like more podcasts from the church. Mm-hmm. And that was my, well, okay, then I've been thinking about doing one. Uh, but what I found is if I don't hit record right away, um, I miss some of the better stuff. So, so it gets edited at the beginning, you know, but. Yeah, yeah. And some of the more natural conversation banter and like surely for us, there's. Sure. Decades now. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I'll introduce you because like, we've been recording now for several minutes and uh, I haven't introduced you or to you, Sarah Yardley. Um, I have referred to you for the last 20 years as my conference friend because I don't think we have ever hung out outside of a leadership or pastor's conference. Uh, but I met you in 2001 in uh, Austria at, at a castle um, and uh, in the Alps. And uh, so you were there, uh, your church uh, was sort of the mothership church for the group of churches we both grew up in. Um, and you guys were running the conference for uh, ministry leaders in Europe and I was living in Europe, so I, I went. And that's where we met. And then over the last 20 years, we would just run into each other at different leadership conferences in Washington and California. Um, and now neither of us are part of that group of churches, but we're still serving Jesus. And you live in England where I used to live. So why don't you just uh, kind of share a quick, what do you do and uh, what's going on with you? Yeah, Adam, just because you've triggered though, the uh, that memory, I just want to say, first of all, it's, it's kind of iconic. It's like one of those things you say slightly casually that we met at this castle that the church owned. Like there, there's just those moments where I realized some of the statements I get to say as a Christian kid are, are pretty weird. Sure, um, sure. But that year, that trip was actually, it was my 18th birthday and I had had the job, which again, this is an iconic moment of emailing every missionary that was supported by that church movement across Europe and getting the wish list of whatever they wanted us to bring and then bringing it. And so we, we literally, bear in mind back then, certain parts of Eastern Europe were, were fairly isolated as well for our listeners. Like we were bringing everything from jars of peanut butter to custom roller blades to a hernia belt for someone who will not be named in this podcast. <laughs> And um, I just look back and, and sometimes, you know, you just think, oh gosh, I got to do that. Like I just got to email every missionary across the continent of Europe, bring over over a hundred custom gifts. We had 74 suitcases full of gifts for these missionaries. And I got to coordinate with our congregation back home to pick these gifts and then hand every missionary a care package, a gift, a card of encouragement. And now as someone who lives uh, on the mission field, I just think like, what a fun thing that I got to be part of. And I now understand more of why those relationships ended up having such depth, because that's really meaningful when you're living yeah. in an isolated context. Someone thinks about you, sends you something custom, and then writes something prophetically over your calling and who you are. So, um, yes, we grew up in that movement together, and seven and a half years ago, I came over to Cornwall, England on a little summer trip, thinking I would stay for four or six weeks, and whilst I was here, the leader of a charity called Creation Fest passed away really suddenly from cancer, 
And I just felt God's specific prophetic call to stay in the UK. And this was as surprising to me as it was to anyone else. Um, we were chatting just a little bit now about leaving our comfort zones and our places of security, but you don't know how much of your identity is wrapped up in something until you lose it. And so I just had the identity of Orange County girl, mega church girl, Christian kid girl, missions trip leader. I, I just had so much of my life wrapped up in Christian culture. And then suddenly to move to a part of the UK that's 70% council housing, yeah. where it literally rains every day, where Jesus is used as a swear word, but not as a name of blessing. Yeah. And um, where being an American had a little spark of initial interest, but then held a lot of other baggage attached, uh, it really caused me to have some identity shaping moments. And we'll see where this conversation takes us. But seven and a half years later, I love Jesus so much more. Mm. And I'm thankful for every little bit of loneliness, isolation, hardship, and pain that stripped me of those unhelpful parts of my identity and leaned me more into who Christ is. Yeah. And, uh, and for those who don't know, I mean, I, well, most of my listeners won't know, a council estate is, or council house is essentially like the projects. Uh, the government builds these houses and then lets people live in them. Uh, the better ones are the ones where people have been there a long time and they're able to buy the house for super cheap. Um, so there is actually like a way that they, they improve or can improve. I lived on a, the last place I lived in England was a council estate, um, that had, but it was on its way up where more and more people had owned. Yeah. And you're right. Thank you. That, that vocabulary is not necessarily an international vocabulary, but what it means kind of in a played out sense is that in, in the town where I lived for the, those first three years, you would have people who for three generations had never had a job. No one in your family had ever had a job. And one of the beauties of a socialist care system is that no one goes homeless, but the quality of life and yeah. the uh, the challenges as well around kind of capturing people towards a vision of a better future and yeah. um, feel really uphill. And so you've got high levels of addiction, high levels of abuse, high levels of poverty within those kinds of communities. And it was just utterly different from my Orange County experience yeah. where uh, a day of poverty meant that I could only order off the dollar menu rather than um, living a lifestyle um, that had been influenced by layers of systemic poverty. Yeah. And it, and it was shaking for me because I grew up, uh, I grew up the poor kid at a rich kid's school and my dad had a couple jobs and my mom had a job. And then like, you know, we had people in our school that had, you know, million dollar, what in Seattle, I mean, in Orange County, everything's a million dollar house, but like in Seattle in the eighties, like to have a million dollar house was a big deal because Seattle was, it was before Microsoft blew up. So it wasn't cool. Um, and, uh, so, but then to go to England, uh, where I was living in Manchester and see poverty at, a, at like a more real level, uh, and realize like, even as a poor kid, uh, living where I lived, I still had it pretty good and you say generationally, but like, it's not just generational, but it's, um, when I lived there and I'm assuming it hasn't changed that much, but you would see a, a, a 14 or 15 year old gal pushing a baby in a stroller and her mom is 29, maybe. And grandma is 45 and great grandma's, you know, 63, right? So like generational doesn't mean like what it necessarily means here, especially as we stretch out when people, you know, 
you have kids and stuff in America, I mean, it's, it's tight. Um, it's 15, 15, 15. It can be very compressed. And I think one of the challenges that I actually still see really often is I've got this radiant group of teenagers. I'm expectant that they're going to know Jesus in a way that's radical. There's about 20 of them in my life regularly right now. Um, and there's just a, often a lack of aspiration towards anything more than yeah. that kind of lifestyle. Um, along with a, a particular set of challenges where we would know we believe the gospel holds power to change our lives, yeah. but saying Jesus can and will change your life sounds incredibly daunting or very distant to someone who's dealing with the issues of poverty, addiction, abuse, and a whole host of other challenges. And so then they hear something like Jesus can change your life. And they're like, well, which part of it can he change? And when can he change it? And what will it look like for him to change it? And so it's, it's even really in, impacted the way that I share the gospel and speak about the, the kinds of people Jesus is calling us to become, because the reality is in often in many cases, those outward circumstances, there's a journey for those to transition and it's not a one step change. Yeah. There is something happening outside of my offices. So we might have to edit that little bit out or say it again. Yeah. No, it's, it's fine. You know, I mean, one of the things like I, one of the things I've found and, and it took me a while to want to do this podcast because I had to accept uh, a lower quality um, because like we put effort when, when everything shut down, like um, we didn't do video. We're, we're not a big church. So we didn't do video. We had like an audio uh, record, a bad, just a recording of the sermon. And then um, our, our denomination had these grants, so we got some money to put into it. And I had crash coursed on how to like do all this stuff, right? And, but, but I think we do a decent job with like our Sunday morning online service. Uh, we do a 20 minute Bible study podcast um, where it's, it's, it's Chuck Smith Sunday night style where I'm just, re but I have a timer, it's 20 minutes. And if I hit a wall, it's like, all right, we're gonna have to pick it up next week. And those have a, a, a quality in the audio and the video, but to do this uh, and, and to want to talk to people like um, last, the, the, the last episode I recorded was with our, the pastor of our Corvallis church. That's where in state is. And so he's dealing with college students. Um, and he also uh, runs our in-house, our denominations in-house grads, grad school. So he's uh, dealing with uh, just a bunch of different stuff. So, but like to have conversations and I'm talking next week with the guy in Chicago um, but I can't do that with a high quality. So I just have to accept that. And I think that kind of goes with like England too, where you're talking about going from Orange County and mega churches and not just mega churches, but like, I, I, like we have big churches here, right. But in Portland, but we can't comprehend that like Athey Creek is like the biggest church in the area. It sucks out all the oxygen, all that stuff. And they're nothing compared to like, what some of these like churches you've never heard of in Orange County, let alone the, you know, the Saddlebacks and the, uh, the Costa Mesas and that stuff, like the churches you, yeah, you've never heard of this church, but it's, you know, 10 times bigger than AD Creek. And then you go there and it's totally different. You have to accept a lower, like, all right, it's not going to be the, the quality, the production, the whatever that I'm used to, but it's what we've got. It's what we can do. And I think one of the beautiful learning curves around that is then take whatever your churches are in Portland and then move to England and you like half or third it again. Sure, sure. So 
It really, um, when I first moved over to the UK, I had written in the front of my Bible, the words, it is worth it for one. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a quote from Ray Bentley, who's a, a dear friend, just passed away recently. And, and I had to really test for those first three years, did I mean those words? Like I wrote them in my Bible at a conference surrounded by thousands of people and I felt really moved. And so I wrote in my Bible, it is worth it for one opening page of the Bible. I wrote those words. And I think it took me three years to realize at the time that I wrote that I didn't mean it. And yet the words are still true. It is worth it for one. Yeah. And it, it was the one by one by one. And seven and a half years later, it is still one by one by mm-hmm. one that I get to walk with people towards Jesus. I'm, I'm curious, do you think you didn't mean it or do you think you didn't know what it meant? A more generous way to say it is I didn't know what it meant. But a more realistic way, Adam, is that the first few gatherings I organized in the UK, um, someone called me on it. There was maybe 150 people in the room, which is good sized for the UK. That's huge for England. And we were having a fantastic time of teaching and worship. And I kept looking at the door, wondering when everybody else was going to show up. Mm. And uh, someone came up to me and, and really kindly said, are you looking at the door, waiting for other people to show up? And uh, I actually don't even remember how I responded at the time. I hope I was honest. Uh, but I, I, yeah. I was looking around at my good-sized gathering on a Saturday of people who'd come hungry to hear and encounter something of Jesus and thinking, it's not quite as many as I thought I would be. I'm a little bit disappointed in who's here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, I think that's like a, a, a thing everybody has to come to terms with that you have these ideas about what you're supposed to do and what the purpose is. And then, um, you know, we all say like, well, God, whatever you want, but we don't, it, do we not mean it or do we just not know what that means? I think it's probably a little of both. And, and yours is the kinder and, and a genuinely pastoral way to say it. I've just learned, as we both have, some people retell their stories and they candy coat things. Yes. Like they put a varnish over it and they sugar it and uh, they're always finding the sweet or happy ending. I've just learned from my own life and stories and for the preachers that I really respect, the way that they tell it doesn't always tie up neatly with a bow. And, you know, we say things like, I want Jesus to be the hero of the story, but in order for Jesus to be the hero of the story, sometimes I have to show you, here's where my heart was and here's where I long for it to be. Yeah. And I think that probably speaks to our differences in personality because um, I have to force myself to find the more optimistic thing. Like I tell myself, oh, I'm just a realist. I'm just a pragmatic person. And that's true, but I'm also like negative and I have to find... (laughs) I have to find the way to like, how do I say this in a more positive way? Because I'll mean the same thing as somebody else, but my way of saying it comes off negative. And, you know, it's part of why I didn't make it at my previous church. You know, it's just a a learning curve, uh, you know, you have to find. And I think in ministry as well, as, as we grow and as we mature, we're continually just looking at what are the lenses through which we tell the story. So I, I actually do agree with you. I'm the eternal optimist. I'm like, I can find the shiny unicorn end to even a little walrus. Like somehow I will turn those two into one. And um, so one of the disciplines that God's had me on in my time in the UK is both to be realistic, not to do the Orange County padding of the numbers. I don't know, 500 
500 people came to Christ when it was maybe five. Um, and also not to rush the way that we tell our stories and the way that we engage with our journeys, because actually it's the long story towards Christ. And so I'm much more comfortable now speaking a little bit about the warts or the, uh, the, the moments that felt quite uphill yeah. and just recognizing that actually sometimes we're in the middle of those chapters and people find a little bit of that home and that authenticity, particularly in the moment in which we live remarkably helpful for their spiritual journeys. If as leaders, we don't just say, here's the instantaneous solution to all things, which I know you're, you're really passionate about as well. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I found that I, I don't give altar calls. Um, and yet I'm more invitational than, than ever in my preaching. And, and I think it's because this, this idea that like, yeah, for some people, there's this moment of conversion um, and I've, I've seen that too many times to discount it, but then at the same time, like, um, I remember being, and this is indicative of, of others that I've seen, but I remember being in London for an outreach and, uh, this guy, we prayed with this guy and you think, oh, this guy prayed and he's gonna, you know, he's a Christian now. And then like he texted, he only had, like, he had somebody's phone number, but he texted them to basically say, I prayed with that girl because she was pretty and I just wanted to like keep talking to her. So like, and, and it's not the, it's definitely the more extreme case of that I've ever seen. Um, and I think most people just aren't on, uh, honest about it either. Like they just disappear. Like, what was that? I prayed with somebody and then they ghosted. Um, but I, but I, I found that, that that's true. I love that story because I think that's a classic like American team outreach story. I mean, yes. I led trips for years with like pretty girls to Costa Rica and I'm pretty sure a lot of their missional evangelism work wasn't helpful towards either one. Um, but I will say just coming back to your kind of previous point, I also am less likely at this point to do the traditional standard Billy Graham style altar call. Yeah. But I do believe that the gospel preached calls us to response more yes. than ever before. So I, I think one of the major shifts I've had in both kind of my understanding of the gospel and the way that I communicate it is to say that when the gospel reaches the heart of a follower of Jesus or someone on the fringes, there's always an invitation there. And I've been most influenced in the preaching that I hear and in the style that I now carry to yeah. say, what's the invitation in this text? What's the, the place where this text confronts our souls? And how can we leave some space after the word of God is preached to simply say, when the word of God encounters a life and a heart, that life and heart should not leave unchanged. Yeah. And so I, I think, and you know, that that's a nuanced and, and quite deep theological thought. But the reality is like, when we read scripture, it should be like shaping and forming and bringing life to our souls. And so I find that almost any time I'm reading any text, I'm just asking spirit of God, what would you desire to shape or form in my heart from what I've read of this text? Sure. Yeah. And, and that's why I say a more invitational, we, we call it uh, in church, our response time. Um, yeah. And uh, one of the things that we did was we shifted um, prayer. So we have, after the sermon's done, we have uh, people pray out loud um, which I'm pretty sure would make some kind of church growth consultant cringe, but it, it, and uh, it's working. People are praying out loud, and um, 
but you have to create space for that response. You know, it's one thing to say, Hey, let's have a response. And now we're going to leave versus like, we're going to create space right now. Um, in our, in, in, so, you know, we have prayer, we have some music, but it's like, even then the song choice is thought about like, is this, how, how do, how are we responding? Yes. Um, and, and I think creating those spaces is so important because we don't know how to do it. And I think one of the interesting things about the, the Wesleyan tradition of which I also find myself in a sure. context inversion of is, um, there's a real active response to and living out of the gospel. Yeah. And in 21st century context, that looks very diverse. And we could probably go line by line through our experiences within those traditions. Um, but there's something about when we encounter the word of God that we then, uh, Methodism here in the UK, we're methodically looking at how to live into um, the story of Jesus and meet up with groups and dive deeper into scripture. And so there's some of that kind of holiness tradition that yeah. also compels us to say our lives must look different in light of having met Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's one of these things. I, I had somebody in the church ask me uh, on Sunday, like, why do we box ourselves in? Like, why would you identify as anything other than a Christian? Um, and and my, my response was in general, I try not to, but at the same time, it does give framework to what you're doing in certain contexts. And so it's helpful to give people a framework um, without getting boxed in. Because the moment somebody hears that you grew up in Calvary Chapel, like there's so many assumptions put on you immediately, uh, good and bad. And, and I don't know if you've experienced the same, but I just think, gosh, we all come from some family and sure. we all belong to some family and uh, both biologically and spiritually, I'm the first to own. There's parts of my background that I have shifted from massively sure. and uh, that, that I'm very different in my perspective, but also your family are your family. And yeah when you have those kind of spaces where you think, oh gosh, I was growing up, probably much like any toddler, there were, there were parts of my younger years that I look back and think, oh God, I stumbled. I, sure. uh, I was wondering, I was wondering, I was figuring it out, but our families are our families and I have yet to find the perfect family. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and, and so it's like, I don't disown any of it, um, but I'm aware that you get, you know, lumped with things. And uh, I am curious about this. So our denomination just had a, um, we just had a vote, uh, but they haven't told us the results yet because there's still a couple of conferences, which is like regions, you know, uh, that have to vote. And we're sort of, they're trying not to sway the election, but we are voting on a change to our, our rule book. And basically we're, we're going to ordain women. The short, the really dumbed down version is we're going to do everything but elder. Okay. Um, and, and uh, I actually was like, on this team that kind of led a charge to get it passed. Um, and uh, even though I'm still like, I'm still complimentarian enough that I can, I can still pastor on paper in a Calvary Chapel. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not political enough, I think anymore. And I, and I certainly uh, took COVID seriously too much for a lot of them, but um, <laughs> the, uh, but the, but yeah, so I, I've worked to get it passed and I think it will get passed. Um, and like all compromises, you know, we have egalitarian churches that are really miffed that we didn't do enough. And there's more traditional churches that are miffed that we did anything. So we're working through that. But I'm curious, you're, you're, uh, what's your actual title? Like what, it, and, and which group of churches are you in now? 
It's such a great question, Adam. And um, I'll answer really for this particular moment in which we're recording this podcast, um, wow. which is a little bit of a transition moment. And I, I think kind of, as I've just said, I'm willing to be honest. Sure. It's a great space to be in. Um, so interestingly, I am not ordained at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Although almost everybody thinks that I am. <laughs> so that I found out on this last trip back to California how many people already think that I am. Um, the particular kind of spaces that I hold is I have a theology degree from St. Yeah. Melitis, and that's a bachelor's degree in mission and ministry and theology. I am a lay preacher within the Methodist church and Methodism, you know, as early as the 1700s, John Wesley was really passionate about releasing both men and women to preach and lead home fellowships. So Methodism has this really rich history of preachers of both genders. Um, And then I'm also a canon within the Anglican church. Um, but I'm a lay canon. And because no one listening to this will have any idea what that means, just yes. don't be worried. No one understands what a canon is, including my British friends. Um, but essentially, a canon is one who exemplifies the rules or the way of the life of Christ. And so because of the work I've been able to do in the UK, holding together parts of the church that would very often be splintered and isolated from each other, mm-hmm. um, I was appointed about a year and a half ago, one of the canons of Truro Cathedral, which is in its shortest version, just a tremendous honor. And I've got a robe and a shiny medallion and my own special stall in the cathedral. Um, But essentially just says, Sarah is one who draws together the people of the family of God into the spaces to seek God. Sure. Then kind of part of that wider journey and question and, and the interesting thing for me is many of the areas into which I step, I'm stepping into mm-hmm. as a representative of who Christ is. And so I've been for the last seven and a half years in the UK, part of a Methodist church, which I love dearly. It's been home for me in many ways. Yeah. Where the Methodist church sits right now and then where my particular local expression have sat is broader theologically than I feel comfortable leading in. Sure. I'm right in the middle of stepping back from that church and that church community. And I'm visiting the local churches in my area to see where I'll land at for home. Yeah. And so again, just in the sake of honesty, I'm going to visit a local Anglican church. I'm going to visit a local Assemblies of God church. I'm going to visit a local Elam church. And I'm going to visit a local New Frontiers church. Oh. Say, stay tuned and watch this space. One of those churches will be my home church. Sure. Yeah. You know, our, so our denomination, um, we were called the Evangelical United Brethren. And I'm told in like the 1800s, we were like the fourth biggest denomination in America or something like that. But, but here's the way to understand the Evangelical United Brethren. Imagine that in the 1980s, a Spanish-speaking denomination was founded that claimed Chuck Smith as their spiritual father. Yes. And, and, and Chuck had no idea that they existed. But then the guy, but then Brian Broderson knew about him and said, I only want to, I'm not saying this about Brian, but I'm just saying like Brian Broderson who took over for Chuck Smith. The guy who took over for Chuck Smith said, I know who you are, but I only want to work with you if you, if you minister in English. 
because that's what happened in America was that the EUB started these three different streams of it started on the East Coast among German immigrant speakers. And they started to evangelize and they saw Methodism going and they said, that fits us. So everything was structured like a Methodist church. But then, um, oh, what's that guy's name? Um, Asbury, the, the guy that, uh, that John Wesley sent to America to run Methodism in America. Whitfield. Uh, no, no, Whitfield was different. Uh, there was this other guy who was sent to be like the head of Methodism in America. Okay, amazing. And, and so he knew about these guys, but he basically said, English is the language of America. You know, I'm not interested in working with you unless. So they just said, cool. And they just did their thing. And then they went West. Um, so like my church was founded by one of the first four evangelists they sent West to Oregon on the wow. trail. Um, and so then, um, you know, World War One happened, and, and by then, all of our churches had switched to being English-speaking for reasons. But that's kind of the history of it. And then in 1968, there was a merger with the Methodists. So that's how the United Methodists came to be, because the United part of the even, uh, well, that was us. And we broke away because the Methodist churches in Oregon and Washington were like, we don't believe in the virgin birth. We don't believe that Jesus was necessarily real. He might be more of a construct. Uh, the Bible, that's all questionable. And so they said, like, how can we partner with these guys? Whereas, like, my grandfather was pastoring uh, the Gettysburg EUV church in Pennsylvania, and it was really different. Like, he stayed and he pastored for about five more years with the Methodists. So it was a different vibe. So, so for us, Methodism was like, but we also are still like, except for John Wesley and anybody connected to him, and then, and then you'll get the old timers that, that are, oh yeah, we're, we're down. Uh, I mean, but, that's a fun piece of history. And if it was just us sitting on a bench, I'd ask you a thousand more questions, but I now feel intrigued by my cousins who came from Western Oregon Trail Evangelism Church planting. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a book. Um, so uh, the, uh, you know, when you're, when you're making that transition, so growing up in, in a group of churches where um, it's highly complementarian, men are the only one teaching, preaching, um, like, and then to shift into that leadership role. Um, my, my question is, how can churches, because our church, our group of churches like historically are the more complementarian of the global Wesleyan Alliance. Uh, so we're, we're figuring this out. And my personal take is just, Hey, I would let, and growing up, I saw this, like, and you'd have all these guys who weren't elders and they were allowed to preach and they were allowed to lead ministries. So why wouldn't I let a, a lady who's not an elder do the same things? So, you know, we, that's, that's kind of been my, my take for the last several years. And, um, now I'm told, you know, depending on who you talk to, I'm either I'm either out there liberal or I'm far too conservative. But how can churches, um, as churches increasingly shift to a more on a practical level, more egalitarian place where where women are more empowered? What can we do to actually release women into ministry versus like talking about it? Yeah, so a huge passion of mine, um, Adam and. You know, in the early years of my journey into a more public role of leadership and ministry, it was hugely emotional for me. And it's it's now, by the grace of Christ, less emotional, but it's just one that I feel like deeply committed to journeying with and have had the great joy of journeying with a number of churches around this. 
Um, so the simple question, like the one off question is, what is the maximum that you believe women can do within your church fellowship? And then the secondary question that comes after that to me is, and how are the churches and leadership team and those who hold the power enabling the maximum that you believe women can do within your church fellowship? And the reason I like those two questions is because that answer is going to look very different for different contexts, different settings, and different theological persuasions. So I did my dissertation for my um, bachelor's in this. And what I looked at was that particularly there's going to be some theological questions. Uh, the book that was most influential for me in my early years is a book called Hearing Her Voice, A Biblical Invitation for Women to Preach by John Dixon. Strong complementarian frameworks, but exactly what you've just said. Why, why would women not have the chance to proclaim the gospel? And that's a simple, easy read for a leadership team to just say, let's start this conversation. But I think one of the things that's really important for anyone to recognize is that there's going to be some emotional and some practical barriers around even once you've navigated that theology, finding the woman to preach. So the emotional barriers will be things like identity. There'll be things like what's been modeled for you. Um, there'll be things like that question that some women still have in the back of their head. Are they somehow disobeying or defying God if they stand to speak in an assembly that holds mixed gender audience? I just think it's important not to minimize that if that's what you've been told your whole life long and then one day it switches, yeah. there's going to be some deep-rooted questions within that. And the second, which I actually think is really important to acknowledge, is that there's just going to be some practical barriers. And I'll, I'll just use one example of these. If you're in a context where you're, you're making the kind of change that your church movement has, and the men within your church fellowship have for years been mentored, been given opportunity, studied theology, been prepared, been involved in some way, and then are invited to begin preaching, they're probably going to preach fairly well. If the women in your fellowship have not been mentored, have not been given many public opportunities, have not been given the space to play a little bit and try and fail, and then one day are given the microphone to begin preaching, then there are absolutely moments where just the anointing of God kicks in and it's a beautiful thing. But I believe preaching is a craft that's honed. And so it's taken me years of honing and studying and being mentored and failing to reach the point where I now feel fairly confident that wherever I'm invited, I will be able to come and give something that's faithful to scripture and also clear to the audience to whom I'm communicating. And so I just think looking at all of those areas almost as like on-ramps and thinking about how are you creating on-ramps for those in your fellowship to begin to engage in these ways um, and there's a phenomenal book by Katie, K-A-D-I, Cole, called mm -hmm. Developing Female Leaders that just gives the best set of frameworks I've ever read around how to begin to make those kinds of quite seismic cultural shifts within a church community. Yeah, yeah. And and I think what happens too is, because you're, you're right about like these, these unintended structures, you know, um, I, I, uh, I know she's, well, she might not be controversial where you're at. She was controversial where I lived, but Thatcher, you know, Mar uh, Margaret Thatcher had to basically- Hugely controversial. Hugely sure. controversial. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, in certain parts of the the English countryside, you know, yes. still some somebody has a has a little shrine to her somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but you think about it is that to be her, she had to push and push and bully her way to the top because there was no other way for a woman to do that then. But but then it's like she didn't know how to turn that off and and so she wasn't like necessarily the best once she got into office at ruling because she didn't know how to do it in a way that was, uh, you know, whatever, you know, however, however you want to frame her. Cause she, she's, she's so polarizing that it's hard to like make these hard statements about her. But I think what happens too is in churches, there's some gal who the only way for her to have a voice is to break some, break some glass. And then, it's easy for people, men and women, to say, oh, you know, women aren't good at leading because mm. anytime we've seen it in the church, it's been this person. And yeah, that person was a bad fit and they shouldn't have been in leadership. Not the way, or at least not the way it was going. But 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 the only way that they could be in leadership was <laughs> breaking a lot of things along the way. Yeah. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, I'll often say this semi-sarcastically, but I, I, I mean it genuinely. I'm not looking to just cheer on female preachers. I'm looking to cheer on good preachers. Sure. So I want to be giving every opportunity I can as someone who leads and stewards a large scale event. I'm looking to showcase leaders of both genders, of a wide variety of backgrounds, of a wide variety of race. Like I'm, I'm looking at all of those questions. Um, but I think the stereotypical female leader, which is kind of what we're alluding to here, and I'm just not even going to try to touch Margaret Thatcher's politics because I, no, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you live in a country and you realize some of these areas hit deeper than you would have known. Sure. I think that stereotypical female leader is an unfortunate stereotype. Mm -hmm. uh, as I've actually found as a female leader, my personal experience has felt far more like the Deborah Barrack story. And when I read that story, what I'm pulling out of it is Deborah was a woman submitted to God first, and secondly, appeared to be in good relationship with her husband. Deborah was a woman respected in the area in which she was. And Deborah was the woman who was so respected for her wisdom and her judgments that the leaders of the troops said, we don't want to go to war without you. Yeah. And I'll just tell like a little story just for fun. I work with mostly men on my events teams. Like my site managers are men and my staff are men. Like I've got lots of men that I work with. And this last year, as we were planning kind of our large scale event, there was this really important meeting. And it just so happened that it was me and 10 men. Mm. And I said to my team, guys, I'm gonna be about 15 minutes late. You guys go and start the meeting without me. I trust you fully. Whatever you decide, I'll either honor or we'll have a conversation if we need to, but I trust you. And I got to the meeting 15 minutes late and, and my leaders said to me, Sarah, we didn't want to start until you got here because we want you to set the vision and the tone for this meeting. 
And I just thought what a lovely, like opposite to the way that's kind of portrayed where like the female leader is grasping for power and has to assert her space. I'm like, I want to give away as much power as I possibly can. I trust my teams, but they've said to me, no, Sarah, we don't want to go into war without you. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the places that I long for and hunger for and would love to see more of within church is that women who know who they are in Christ, who've been invited into those spaces with just joy, that the men would say, no, we don't want to go into war. We don't want to go into the battlefield places. We don't want to walk into the fullness that's ahead until we've got our whole team around us. Um, I just long for that kind of honor and deference on both sides. Yeah. And I hope that if the roles had been reversed and the leader of that group had been a man and I had been one of the women on the team, that I would have had that same honor and deference toward the one that God had placed in the role of primary leadership. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny too, because we have the stereotype of like men holding women down. And so that's definitely true. And it's definitely been the case. But at the same time, like I found that often um, I have seen pushback, not from men in the church, but from older women in the church. Uh, so we installed, you know, uh, our head trustee is a gal. And, and before her, we installed the church's first ever, I think, in 140 years, uh, woman trustee. And I think the pushback came more from women than from men, uh, which surprised me. Um, but but yeah. you have this sense of how it's supposed to be or what have you, you know. Absolutely. And I think some of these moments as well, because I live in another country and in another context, um, I'm always astounded when I come back to America, how different the, the cultural landscape is. So I think just for anyone listening to be reminded and acknowledge, I live in the UK. I, I live as a missionary in the UK and I live as a missionary in the UK in a place where I've sown in seven and a half years of my life and my leadership and done the hours and the road trips and the time with the pastors and leaders so um, I didn't just step into a role and not have those kind of groundwork moments. There've been far more times when I've listened than when I've led. And so now I sit in the space where I look around and think, I both want to lead really well. I want to cheer other, the other, on the other woman in my life, but I also want to just cheer on the other followers of Jesus in my life. Um, and I think the place that you're in is in a slightly different place. Sure. And so it kind of comes back to one of those ideas that we've been talking about in the earlier part of this podcast. Sometimes it's one by one. Sometimes it's just sitting with those who have that position and almost just hearing from them. Now, just tell me, why is this a place of of hardship or pain for you because quite often part of their story or part of their theology or part of the way they understand scripture is such that this feels like it's a mountain and um, and i think there's often those times to develop the relational uh conversation around these seismic cultural shifts as well yeah and that's to be the biggest thing like if we aren't listening to each other if there's bad communication or no communication um it, the ten the human tendency is to fill those gaps. And that's not always with the best, you know, the, the human tendency is to fill those gaps with the worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you hear, you hear stuff and then it gets back to you, you know, Oh, you know, did you hear that, uh, Tower Chapel Costa Mesa ordained this gal and sent her to England. And, you know, then she's preaching at the church and they're, they've just totally gone emergent and, um, <laughs> 
We had a, we actually had a, a, a church in our denomination. They were interviewing a pastoral candidate. And I was talking to somebody on their team, and he's like, "I really like him, but I'm worried that he might be emergent." And I was like, the fact that you said that word tells me that he's not, but that you don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, there, there's so many fascinating moments along the journey. And, and one of the things I find really, really um, just interesting about this question as a whole is along the way, so many of the open doors that God has given to me have been through the, the male leaders who are in and around my life. And I've held myself intentionally accountable to pastoral leadership my whole journey through. Yeah. Um, and so I often find, as is the case with so many stories, if you just pick up the phone and have a conversation or send an email and ask the question, um, you'll find there's more of a winsomeness than whatever the, the worst case scenario is. And one of the things I, I also long for is for our church families and our church congregations to be freed from those places of gossip. Um, mm. Some of the stories I've heard myself about myself are astounding. I'm, I am bewildered about these stories. Um, and I, I think in that same sense, it's just reminded me not to hold or carry that spirit in any of my conversations, because at the end of the day, my own heart and soul are the only one that I have the complete ability to oversee. So I don't want to ever add to confusion, but I'm also just looking at the, some of those things and thinking stories can become stories very quickly. So I know you've got a hard out because you're working on your master's degree and as somebody who just graduated last year with that, I understand how that is. Uh, so um, just kind of want to uh, end this with, I know you've got a book coming out, um, you know, any, any social media, any podcasts, any projects you want to let people know about the floor is yours. That's really kind. So I have a book on change out with SPCK and the book title is more change because it's part of a series called more. Um, and the theme is just on navigating a changing world in light of an unchanging God. I often call it my EP. It's short and sweet. It's eight chapters um, a number of my friends have been using it for like an eight week small group conversation. There's a video curriculum that's out for it. Um, would love to have you check that out. And um, it's available in both printed and audiobook format. So for people who enjoy listening, uh, I've read the book, which is a fun adventure available through any of the major platforms, Audible and et cetera. And then um, socials, I'm, my name is Sarah Yardley. And so I'm at Sarah Yardley for both Facebook and Instagram. And I am on Twitter at Yardley Sarah. And I think the, the thing I'm really just passionate about is modeling what does it look like to live a life towards Christ? And so um, I go through moments of incredible content uh, spamming and then moments of kind of gaps because I think we all need to take a break in our modern world. But what I'm looking to do is just really simply find and tell true stories. And so sometimes those are my own and sometimes with permission, those are the stories of some of my dear friends and just be thinking about what does it look like 21st century modern world just to walk towards Jesus in the everyday moments. Well, that's, I, I appreciate you sharing with us and I'm going to hit end on the recording. And so uh, thank you for being on this podcast and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again. So thank you. And uh, thanks, Adam. thanks for being with us.